0: Village. Had a village green where you could imagine in warmer times of year because, you know, let's face it, in England, northern England, in October, is not warm. I don't think I ever had a warm feast there. The beach was beautiful, had a beautiful rocky outcropping jutting out into the North Sea. Just a beautiful picturesque kind of area, idyllic. But I have to say, when I first walked in to the hall where church services were going to take place, I immediately thought, I have made a really big mistake. Because you have to remember, too, it's filled with British people (laughs) and one or two other Europeans. Which, that's kind of worse. <laughs> and British people are known to be proper but and polite, but they're known to be a little reserved. So I walk in there, 19 years old, just a lad. I mean, I'm just <laughs> so out of my element. The year before, I was a good old Baptist. And I knew how the world worked. And then the scriptures were revealed to me in a new way. And so I walk in there and it just was not friendly at all. I don't think I had a single person come up to me and say, hi, we're glad you're here. Now, I'm not trying to pick on them because uh, several of them later became friends. But I just think that they hadn't had fresh meat come into that congregation. (laughs) for years, let alone a 19-year-old kid. They probably thought I was there to mug them or (laughs) casing the joint or, or whatever, and there's a lot of backstory to that because I'm from Liverpool and we have a bad name in England if you're from Liverpool. But I just was not made to feel welcome. Very uncomfortable, out of my element, and I just thought, I gotta go home. My dad was gonna join me later in the feast because he he could only take certain number of days off work. (laughs) I just thought, you know, maybe I should just turn around, go home. But I was convicted. I was convicted of the scriptures, of the need to keep the feast. So I endured, (laughs) endured for the first few days until, and Mark, you're gonna like this, the Irish brethren arrived. (laughs) <laughs> my kind of people warm, <laughs> friendly welcomed me into their group made me feel part of the family it was fantastic so I guess the second part of my first feast was good and it did improve and it did get better and I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't mean to give a bad impression of everybody in England but it was a challenge there for a few days, and it's really, you know, that's stuck with me. I'm I'm somewhat of a a shy person, and so I try to make people feel welcome when they walk in through the door, new folks as they come in. Because as much as we are to know the scriptures, we really need to know how to welcome people and to know how to make them feel part of what we're doing and, and part of our family. But, in spite of it all, I can look back and I can see god 's hand, because had I turned around, had I gone back, i don 't know if I had would have returned I, I was just fresh out of the Baptist Church, I could have just gone right back to that right. I was comfortable there. I knew people there, and there's a lot to be said for that and so many of you probably have the same experience, it's difficult to leave that family that you knew and start in a new way. Even though you have the scriptures. Even though you know it's God's God's plan. But Like I said, I stuck it out. I didn't go back home. I stayed. And a couple of years later, at the same feast site, I met a young lady that would be crazy enough to actually marry me. My beautiful bride, Renee. And 16 months later, she turned my world upside down and made me move here. (laughs) Clubbed me over the head, put me on board a ship and, you know, and here I am in the promised land. And we've had a, a remarkable journey. And like I say, looking back, I can see God's hand. But I didn't turn around. How different my life would have been for one small decision. And so I'm very grateful for that. And in some ways, I think, in part, that's why Jesus gave us in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer as we know it, a very important and small and often overlooked passage of Scripture. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, he says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Why does Jesus ask us to pray for God's will to be done on earth? Why does he ask us to pray that? Apart from, you know, there are obvious benefits, right? But apart from that, why ask us to pray for it? Can God not bring about his own will on the earth, whether we pray for it or not? Why ask us to pray for that? There's got to be something more in here. This is the model prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus said, construct your prayers on. Build on this platform. Have these segments in it. It wasn't just a throwaway line. It's important for us to know what does he mean and why is he asking us to do that. I think there are at least three ways that this passage that this prayer can affect us, can affect us personally and affect the world. Jesus has asked us to pray for his will, for God's will, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So firstly, I think we can make a reasonable assumption that God's will, or correct me if I'm wrong, is not presently done on earth. It's not, is it? That's a pretty obvious statement, isn't it? I don't have cable television anymore, (coughs) excuse me, but in the kitchen, every morning you see the Fox News. And uh, if you want to see how bad the world is, don't have cable and then watch cable. (laughs) And you're like, that is what is in people's homes every day. And then the news itself, because I was talking about the ads. The ads are awful. At 8.30 in the morning and you see whatever. But then the news itself. Murder, war, destruction, disease. Another uh, a terrorist event I saw this morning. Perpetual. Not God's will. Not the will of God on the earth. Jesus said for us to pray that his will be done on the earth. This world is the opposite to God's will. His will is not here as we know it is in heaven. And yet, it is obvious, but I wanted to really put our mind to that because of what we'll study just in a a few minutes. In Luke chapter 7 verse 24, after talking with the uh, messengers sent from John, Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks them if they knew who John the Baptist was. (coughs) And he asks them, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? What did you go out there to see? A crazy guy? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, a prophet. I say unto you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus was giving them a huge clue about who John the Baptist was, but who he was. who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah and that John was the messenger who was preparing the way, who by the will of God from the womb, remember, by the will of God, he would prepare the way for the Savior. John was fulfilling the will of God. And it's important for us to remember that he was fulfilling the will of God on the earth. Just as we are asked to pray that God's will be done on the earth. Jesus continues talking about John. He says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Do you find that astonishing? John the Baptist is the greatest prophet. And if you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you're greater than he. Because for all that John the Baptist did, being in the kingdom of God is better. Better than the work That even John the Baptist did. Then Luke, in his narrative, says something that I think is even more fascinating. He says, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. They rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, by John. Wait a second. It was God's will that the Pharisees and the lawyers be baptized. That they accept will of God. I I don't know about you, but, you know, when I read about the Pharisees did that, and the scribes did this, the lawyers did this, they're the bad guys, right? They're the bad guys in the story. And yet, God willed that they would accept and be baptized. How gracious God is. But that kind of throws up A question. Well, what if they did? (laughs) Well, that would be a completely different story, wouldn't it, about the crucifixion of Christ? How would that have actually played out? Now the Pharisees say, this is the Messiah, this is great. Well, I don't know what would have happened, but I do know that God gave them the same opportunity that he gives each and every one of us. Their choice, their will, overrode the will of God. And I think that's important for us to remember. Men overrode the will of God. And as we know, they then killed God. God's will is not always done. Even when it's in the Bible, the Word of God. When we see God moving in the lives of individuals, when we we know of His power, we know what He is capable of, and yet His will can be stifled, stopped by men. God's will is not always done. In fact, As we started in the beginning, we understand that God's will is not often in this world. It is more often rejected, it's mocked, it's scorned by people who think they know better. His will is not often done in this world today. If we know then that this is not the world that God wills, then why is it that we would allow this world to dictate our view of God's will in our own lives? Let me say that again. If we know that this is not the world that God wills, then why is it that we would allow this world to dictate our view of God's will in our own lives. I don't do that. Right? You're thinking, I don't do that. What, what's this guy talking about? I don't allow the world to dictate God's will in my life. I, I look for God's will in my life from God, from the Bible, from my prayer time, from the things that I do in my religious and Christian walk. Really? Are you sure? You may have heard a phrase, something along the lines of, well, let me back up. Let me say, you wanted something so desperately. Something that's good. Something that you have prayed for, that you have fasted for, that you have yearned for, maybe for a very long time. Something important in your life or the lives of, of those that you love, and you've yearned for that. And you get to the point where you finally realize it's not happening. It's not going to happen. When somebody gets to that point, what do you often hear? It mustn't have been God's will. Right? I mean, it's an honest thought. Well, God just didn't, didn't want me to have that. Didn't want that to succeed. Whatever, whatever that may be. How do you know? How do you know that that was God's will? It might not have been. I guess it just wasn't God's will. The fact that we so desperately wanted something and then did not receive it is not necessarily a measure of God's will in our lives. Why? Because we just understood that man can frustrate God's will. Man can do things to limit God's will. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't have your thinking like the world's thinking. Don't be molded and shaped by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, test, try what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul says we shouldn't let our mind be shaped by the world. The world would have us view God's will in its light, by its standards, by its way of measuring. (laughs) Instead, we should be renewed in our minds, having the mind of Christ so that we can prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, regardless of what the world tells us, regardless of what happens in the world and in our lives in the world. From this I take two important points. That the world's way of thinking, the world's way of measuring, looks for worldly success. We look for worldly success. It's hard not to because We're just raised in it. We're born here. We're in the world. And it is pervasive. But we should not look for success, for answers, for evidence that we're following God's will by what the world tells us. Paul tells us that our neural pathways should be renewed, should be changed, retrained, rewired to see God's will. But there's a hope in this because Paul also tells us we can know the will of God for our lives. We can know it. He encourages us but there is a warning that we need to be careful of how we evaluate that will. Are we looking for God's will by measuring the results that we get in the world? What if it was his will, that it was his will, that that earnest desire, that that thing that we prayed and fasted for was granted? What if that was his will? He agreed with you. He wanted you to succeed. He wanted you to be blessed with that. And it still did not happen anyway. Even though it's God's will. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm trying to think. what I'm trying to get to here is, So let's say let's say your church congregation, your church group, church family, decided we're going to do a, a public outreach event. So you know, you, you, you printed up your flyers you mailed your mailers, you you invited people to come on a certain date and a certain time and come hear the word of God. And two people show up. And one of them is the janitor who's locking up after you're done. It would be easy, right, to sit back and, well, well, let's reevaluate this. Uh, Okay, so we had one person and he was really uncomfortable as we spoke to him For 45 minutes. Let's evaluate this. Maybe, maybe we chose the wrong thing. Maybe it wasn't God's will. It'd be be easy, right? We should have done something else. It wasn't God's will. What has that got to do with anything? The fact that people from the world didn't show up does not determine whether or not you were following God's will. I know for a fact you would be following God's will. Why? Great commission. Right? Just do it. Just do God's will. So, it's a trap. We try and evaluate how successful we are, even in our ministry, in our work of evangelizing, by the measurements that the world say, this is when you're successful. By that reasoning, the Apostle Paul was an abysmal failure. Whoa, he wrote most of the New Testament. What do you mean? The number of times that he was beaten, kicked out, thrown out from city to city to city. Well, he mustn't have been following God's will at at that city, right? Our Savior was an abysmal failure by that same standard. All the crowds we're gone. What happened to the crowds? Hosanna, Hosanna, they, they exclaimed just a few days before, and they took him, and they nailed him to a tree, and they killed him. By the world's standard, you could say, well, I guess he did something wrong. He wasn't following God's will, but of course, we know he was absolutely following God's will to the end. Sometimes we are rewarded. Sometimes we do see the fruit of following God's will. But I bet you, more often than not, we don't. We don't see the fruit. And we've got parables to show that. On plants, somebody else waters. Were you there at the harvest? You don't know. Following the will of God is something we do regardless of whether the world tells us it's a success. We have to be willing to admit that the will of God can be frustrated, can be suppressed by man and the world. Jesus reminds us of this fact when he asks us to pray. Later on in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's an important context to remember about praying and about trying to follow God's will. It's critical for us to remember that my brother-in-law likes to quote to me often, we are living in enemy-occupied territory. And if you haven't heard that phrase, where he gets that from is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He writes, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And when you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is, when the enemy is so anxious to prevent, that's why, rather, the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day or in this modern era to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and all? I am not particular about the hoofs and the horns, but in other respects my answer is, yes, I do. See, by the world's measurement of whether or not we're following the will of God, they don't want to include that there's another will at work. They don't want to remember that. They don't want us to remember that. For now, this is the world of Satan's making not God's. Why else would Jesus Jesus have asked us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I also think what Lewis said about us living in enemy territory and about how Satan tries to stop us from going to church, we can apply that. That conceit, as he says, and that laziness and intellectual snobbery it's also applicable to our evaluation of God's will. If he can get us to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it wasn't God's will. It must not have been in his plan. Then Satan might be able to further frustrate our application of God's will. To diminish our enthusiasm. Weaken our belief that we can do anything in this world. Maybe even weaken our faith that God hit, heard our prayer at all. That's a very dark place to be. In other words, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we are to be sober and vigilant on our guard not accepting what the world tells us, not accepting what the world tells us to evaluate about the will of God. Be on our guard, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I think for poetry, Peter is saying a roaring lion. When when you're hearing the lion roar, you're safe, aren't you? because you know where he is. And you can climb the biggest tree that you can find and outrun the person next to you. <laughs> it's when the lion is silent. That's when he's going to strike. Because <laughs> you don't know where. And he has made himself silent in this world. Lewis, writing A christianity in the 1950s, I believe, had to argue a combat against this Oh, well, this old notion of Satan the devil, he is real. And he is alive and working and moving in the world and trying to get us to view God's will through that lens of the world. He is against us. He is against God's will. He is at war with us whether we want to believe it or not. So that being the case, why would we think that things in this world always go or always going to happen to the will of God? It won't always. It's a hard thing to hear. It's a little unsettling. But Jesus asks us to pray, thy will be done. Another way the will of God can be frustrated is by our own actions or our own inactions. It's a fascinating passage in uh, 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 14. (coughs) And you probably are familiar with it. King Joash of Israel is at war with Syria. A country that once again, as in, in the news. Once again, is still the thorn in Israel's side. And in verse 14, Elisha had become sick with an illness of which he was going to die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. And he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance. The arrow of the deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrian the Syrians, at Aphek, till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. So, what's the will of God here? By the context, by what's inferred, the will of God is that Syria be destroyed. And Elisha is giving... Joash, a warning, the arrow, that's a symbol here for God's deliverance. And, of course, it's a weapon of war. So, you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to fight these guys. But God will have his deliverance with you. So, then Elisha says to Joash, king of Israel, strike the ground. So, he struck the ground three times. And Elisha, on his deathbed, probably wanted to take those arrows and strike Joash. What are you doing? Three times? You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. Which was the will of God. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Worse, right? Worse than not probably striking them at all. Because now they're mad. And you didn't finish them off. We ourselves can frustrate. We can stop the will of God working in our own lives. Joash had an incredible opportunity to completely remove this enemy. To rid Israel of Syrians once and for all. But he failed. And he failed to understand, to even, I guess, worry about the symbolism. He failed to follow the will of God. He failed to have that conviction. This is the will of God. I am going to do it no matter what. I'm going to follow this through. If the will of God had been carried out, Joash would have totally removed Syria from existence. There would not, perhaps, have been any chemical weapons fired against civilians just a few weeks ago. Why? They wouldn't exist. Joash failed to follow that will of God. In fact, He restricted it. He stopped it. He limited it. Okay, so you and I, we're not faced with these geopolitical challenges, right? Well, President Obama called Ian the other night to find out what he should do about health (laughs) care. That just doesn't come on our radar, at least not yet. But In the will of God in our lives, we should be bold, be assertive, follow that will with conviction, not timid, not with fear. Three times? I don't know, maybe he was, well, three is a biblical number. So is (laughs) 144,000, although he didn't know about that number yet. But he certainly knew about 12, and that was more than five or six having that energy and that conviction, I am going to do this, and I am going to follow God's will. God's will be done. It should be central to our thinking, to our Christian lives. Yet how often, again, have we dismissed our own lack of conviction, our own lack of faith or confidence, our own failure to follow the will of God with, well, it wasn't His will. God must have another plan for me. Maybe he did, but don't use the world and the world's measurements to determine that. Taking that view disguises a larger problem with our faith, with our confidence in the will of God. So, I guess you'd probably be entitled to say, well, okay, Matt, what's the will of God for my life? Since you seem to have all the answers to which I would say, how do you expect me to know that? (laughs) It's your life, and God's will in your life is God's will in your life. I don't have those answers. I try and figure out what God's will is in my life and follow it with conviction. Except, I will say, there is a will of God that I know he has for you. That is above every other aspect of your life that he's working with you. Every other will that he has in your life is geared towards this one overarching will. For your life and for your future. So, since you asked, I will tell you. But you already know the answer. Whether you're a teenager, upset that you've been drugged here by your parents, or a 20 something, still trying to figure out how the world works, you think you're all grown up. (laughs) I remember that. A 30 something, Still, what is God's will? What is, what is his plan for me? What's his plan for me in, in my work life? In, am I going to get married? Am I going to build a family? What does God want me? How does he want me to work in the church? Or whether you're 50, 60, 70 years old, God still has a will for your life. And you know that's true. So what is that will? Simply this. That you enter his kingdom. That's it. Any other will, any other plan, any other action that he calls for you to follow in your life will always support this principle. That you, that I, that we all enter into his kingdom. So when we're struggling, I think we can, we're looking for answers about specific challenges in our life. We can step back and we can say, well, is following this path, will that help me walk in the Christian way toward the kingdom of God? Or will that be a hindrance? Because that new job with that new money may not. Whatever that situation may be, we should ask ourselves that question. There's a familiar scripture found in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. I'm sure you could probably just recite it. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. God thinks thoughts toward us. Each one of us. Says the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, with that conviction, following God's will with all of our heart, putting everything into it. Beautiful words of encouragement, of comfort. God has a will for you. He has a will for me. For us all collectively. You may not be happy that you're here. He is. He is happy that you are here. You may not know how your life will unfold. He does. He thinks about it. He dwells upon it. You may not know how your time here will end. But he does. He knows. And he has a will for that too. He said, then you will call upon me and, I, and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search with Search for me with all of your heart. In the end, isn't that really why we come to the feast? There's so many things that we enjoy about the feast, about fellowship, about aspects of vacation and enjoying new things with our family. But the reason we come to the feast is to seek after God with all of our heart. And to see God in each one of us, encouraging one another. We reconnect with the will of God when we search for Him, when we find Him here amongst God's people. As I was reading this scripture the other day, I was reminded of another scripture that talks about seeking. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've always wondered, never really been satisfied with all the answers that I've gotten, about what it means to seek the kingdom of God. We can look at that word, and it it means to to strive after, to to yearn for, and, and work at getting and arriving at that place. And that's good. But I think there's more in there. I think what Jesus was asking us to pray for back in Matthew 6 and verse 9 is part of this understanding of what it means to seek after the kingdom of God. That we're seeking the will of God. But more than just seeking, more than just looking for it, more than just praying for His will, that we actively engage In executing his will. When somebody has a will, when they write a document that says, this is what I want to have happen when I'm gone, where's the real power to that will? It's not when it's just written on the page, stored in the lawyer's office. It's when it's executed. When the executor comes out and says, here you go, here's your piece of the kingdom of God. God's will be done. is our goal, it is our mission statement. His will be done on the earth. That we become the agents of change here in enemy occupied territory. That we run around and blow as much spiritual stuff up as possible to hamper the enemy's supply lines, to engage the enemy. Not up front. He's got the governments of the world, but as saboteurs, undermining his control of the minds of the people that are around us, trying to apply God's will. We're the special forces, right? Sent behind enemy lines, no matter what the consequences. And there are consequences. There are losses. There are wounds as we walk this Christian life. Undermining the enemy and his will. Praying and actively establishing the will of God. In first John chapter two and verse fifteen, we're told, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. (coughs) It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away. The world is passing away. And when John wrote that, it's been a while. How much more is this world passing away? Corruption of this world is turning upon itself and will be replaced by God's will. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. His will. His will. Whether the world tells us it's successful or not. Whether we even think we're making any headway. This is the will of God. I am doing it with all my heart. It might be easy for us to lose heart. How can we? How can we fill this world with God's will? How will it ever get done if it depends on on me, on us. We can do our best, but we know that we, we cannot bring this about. Not fully. If we ourselves can frustrate the will of God, if this world and its evil can frustrate the will of God, will the will of God ever get placed here as it is in heaven? Well, there is hope. Paul tells us that in Romans (laughs) 8.27. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's one of my my wife's favorite passages. All things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His will, His purpose, but His will. He is able to make all things, even our failures, even our failures, even our frustrating of His will, He is able to make all of that work together our good yeah we're still going to have consequences we know that we know that from experience but he's not done with us yet I think the other reason we can take heart is because we need to remember that the author of that prayer has not left us that we are not alone in trying to pray for and implement in some small way the will of God It's not just up to us. What Jesus asked us to do in the safety of our prayer closet or in the peace of this temporary sanctuary, what he asked us to do in this safety, he did all alone in fear and in great peril. On his knees, trembling in agony, he prayed, saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. I thank God that Jesus Christ, our Savior, not only paid the price and not only prayed for the will of God but actually completed the will of God. May His purpose and His will for all of our lives be done throughout this next year. And may we all enter into that glorious kingdom, a kingdom of God on earth together and Lord May you hear our prayer and that very soon thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven.